Welcome to MMO, the Mike Mike and Oscar show. They cover films then, win the gold, but now we're talking picks up films for all of these shows. From Toy Story 1 up through Toy Story 4, this is the MMO, the Pixar Rewatch Show. Mike One Newman leads us in as we get into another Pixar series rewatch episode, and we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. Mike, we're talking about Pixar, we're talking about fish. We're talking about fish, and we're talking about the ocean being the scariest place imaginable. <laughs> I cannot get over how, what horror films these are, and I really uh, enjoyed these watches. They were they were excellent. Say what you want about the movies. We're yeah. going to be up and down. We're going to have some hot takes mm-hmm. in these Pixar sure. episodes, perhaps for the first time in, in this entire rewatch up till now. We, we like them. But we, we have some fire. Uh, yeah, I think one of the first things that, you know, we're going to get into this and we start, it was one of our themes going through the last Pixar movie we did with The Incredibles 1. And uh, these aren't really kids' movies. <laughs> fairy tales, fairy tales can go dark. Yeah. And they, go, they go dark based on the, uh, the Brothers Grimm. They yeah. go dark based on, you know, what the Pixar founding fathers are putting forth. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, yeah, that's all. we're going to talk about that. We're talking about both Finding Nemo and Finding Dory today. We, as we're doing this Pixar rewatch days, if you've not joined us for a Pixar series rewatch episode before, what we as do. As this horse walks down your stairs. <laughs> yeah, that's my, <laughs> my dog. dog in the background there. Uh, what we do for these series, these episodes, these Pixar rewatch episodes, uh, it's much, much in the same structure as our Oscars print profile, except there's a little added stuff in there about Pixar itself. We have a non-spoiler half and a spoiler-filled half. The non-spoiler half is where you're going to get your cast and crew, your production values, your info, all that good stuff. But we also concentrate and highlight the story of the Pixar business itself, the company where it is in terms of snapshots of where the company was and has grown to related to the movies that we're talking about. So right now we're going to talk about 2003 for Nemo and where Pixar was in 2003 and 2016 for Dory. We're going to have the spoilers warning breakdown as the horse goes back up the stairs. just wanted to say hi to me. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have a spoiler warning breakdown and the spoiler filled section will be we're going to have all the time talking about the twists and turns all the usual stuff we do for spoilers but we're also concentrating on the 22 uh, screenwriting rules that Pixar has put on the screenwriting rules for success and that's where we're going to comment on those and talk about how they work in and are intertwined with the plots for these movies that we laid out Uh, so we're not doing a chronological Pixar rewatch no. Uh, we are do- taking them on a series-by-series, franchise-by-franchise case. That's why we're covering both Nemo and Dory, even though they were released 13 years apart from one another. Last episode, we did both Incredibles, kind of, even though we concentrated mostly on Incredibles 1. Yep. Uh, so that's what we're doing today, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory. The way we start these in the non-spoiler half this Pixar rewatch series is Mike's going to give us the cast and crew. Okay, Finding Nemo was directed by Andrew Stanton and Lee Unkrich. Stanton, Bob Peterson, Dave Reynolds got screenplay credits. Finding Dory, also directed by Andrew Stanton, and this time his apprentice or co-director, was Angus McLean. Uh, Screenplay by Stanton and Victoria Strauss. Co-directors on these Pixar films become lead directors later on. Yeah. And we've seen that a lot, and that's been fascinating. Like, Unkrich would go on and direct a bunch of things uh, that we'll review. Sure. Basically, Stanton was co-director back with John Lasseter on, uh, and I think it was Bug's Life. He was one of the original. I don't don't remember off the top of my head either, but he was there pretty much since the inception. He was a founding father, but he was like a Hamilton, you know, and then he gets his own gig Mm -hmm. at some point and hopefully steers clear of Aaron Burr. I don't know which (laughs) one of these guys would be Aaron Burr. It wasn't Unkrich, but Unkrich was a co-director twice before taking on Toy Story 3 on his own, and he's continued to take on his own projects there as well. In terms of the cast, both films start the voice of Albert Brooks uh, from Broadcast News, many other things. He is Marlin, the daddy clownfish there. Mm-hmm. Ellen DeGeneres plays Dory. Wonderful voice talents to both of them. That's one thing Pixar has done really well consistently is finding great voice talent. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, we talked about, one sure. underrated choice she was for A Bug's Life. They've done that pretty consistently and fairly well. The casting could not have come at a better time for DeGeneres. She was doing movies, and she was also doing a award show hosting circuit essentially a couple times for the grammys once for the emmys she was doing stand-up and then her ellen show the ellen show 
failed in 2001 and only lasted 18 episodes. So she does a, you know, a bunch of stuff like those award shows, raises her profile. This was back in the day when award show hosting was not a lose-lose proposition. Right. Like, so she's asking, <laughs> People act- wanted to do it. Yeah, yeah. She's raising her profile to the point where Oprah, you know, uh, loves her stuff and just uh, puts her on after her. So the Ellen DeGeneres show fortuitously starts in September of 03 after this movie, Finding Nemo, is a humongous hit at the end of May. So I don't think that's by accident. No, that seems to be uh, pretty uh, serendipitous, I would say. And Ellen, of course, still doing that show today. So Finding Nemo, the rest of the voice talent, in terms of the highlights anyway, uh, showcases uh, Willem Dafoe friend of the pod, Brad Garrett, <laughs> brother of Raymond, uh-huh. uh, Allison Janney, mother of Tanya, uh, Stephen Root, Pots and Pans man, mm-hmm. and Jeffrey Rush, who we have talked about very little in the history of our Oscars podcast. We're going to have to get into that sweet spot, late 90s, early 2000s, where he's everywhere. That is kind of funny that we've been doing this for so long, and there are some like very established actors that are very synonymous with Oscars history and Academy history sure. that we just haven't just by happenstance, I haven't gotten to. We're going to have to get right. to him at some point. I'm surprised it came with the uh, Pixar it comes pod with the cartoon, number, yeah. Pixar pod number six. And not shine, yeah. <laughs> Finding Dory, the rest of that cast, stars Modern Families, Ed O'Neill, also married with children there. He is a hero. Ty Burrell, also from Modern Family. It's Always Sunny's Sweet D. Yeah. Caitlin Olsen. She's another great... She's under, I wouldn't have. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought she would, uh, you know, not someone you think of when you think of great voice actors, but her voice is certainly unique enough she was great. Absolutely. We got SNL's Kate McKinnon mm-hmm. and Bill Hader at the time. And this is, you know, 2016, Dory had come out, and we are now firmly in the sweet spot of, I don't care how small the part is, we're going to get an A-lister to do it. A-listers are throughout <laughs> this list of yeah. cast members, yes. Sigourney Weaver, mm-hmm. very funny cameo by her. We have Idris Elba, just playing like a seal. Great. And it's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, we got Dominic West from mm-hmm. The Wire there. We got Eugene Levy, the dad in American Pies. And, of course, Diane Keaton, who yeah. needs no introduction. Levy and Keaton are the parents of Dory, so yeah. that's really nice. Uh, chock full of stars there. A bizarre story, Megan Mullally, this is, uh, f- uh, she's from Will & Grace mm-hmm. originally, cast in the role of Dory, Mike. And the Pixar people thought... Her Karen Walker voice from Will and Grace was her actual voice. So when she started speaking, they were very disappointed. To, to a person, they were disappointed when they started recording. So they kind of asked her to use her Karen Walker voice. She refuses and she's recast. What do you think about that? I read that and I was like, oh, you're standing up to Pixar. <laughs> she did. She, I wonder what her career would be like now. I mean, right. she's been just like the most improved or the uh, scene stealer of every show and movie, Parks Certainly. and Rec. Yeah. A lot of different things. I wonder if she'd be more of a quote-unquote A-lister nowadays, even though I love her career. And she's the more character actory one compared to Ellen. You know, you would think that she would have been the one that... It's, apparently she was the first choice. You would think she would have been the first choice for something like this over someone like Ellen. But she's like, I'm a character actor, just like you said, and I'm going to yeah. do the character, the yeah. voice that serves the character. I'm not going to do that voice. Boy, that sure makes an interesting Hollywood what if, huh? That's a new series we got in the works. You did a lot of work. Uh, put in hours on it yesterday. Yeah. I, I love reading I'm nowhere. all that stuff. <laughs> I'm nowhere. I'll help you kind of shape it a little bit. That's what I do. I shape. But uh, well, we're going to have some Molder, fun with that. Molder of men. For the record, Mike, John Ratzenberger, the mustache from Cheers, he plays the husband crab. In Get he, those checks, Johnny! <laughs> he plays the husband crab in Dory. And the whole fish school in Nemo, which I thought was brilliant. I really yes, enjoyed Yes, that. that was very, very that funny. Scene. All right, Mike, so you got the history of the Pixar company for these two films. We talked about how the A-listers are everywhere throughout this cast, and I think that's what... For, there are a lot of lowlights, and I will talk about those. Right. Um, I did enjoy these movies, but I think the thing they did best was turning the any ancillary character, giving it their own unique personalization and having them stand on their own two yes. legs. And part of that was having these great actors attached to them, but I think that's what one of the things that this franchise does best. Unique voices that fit the fish. Yeah. They really fit the fish. <laughs> yes. I, I enjoy that. Uh, all right, so the story inception of Nemo, if you hear the director Andrew Stanton tell it in the DVD commentary, pretty straightforward and uneventful, and also coincidentally not unlike how it's 
portrayed in he wi- liked on fish Wikipedia. His whole life. More or less, yeah. <laughs> uh, he got to work on writing Nemo sometime in 1997. After his work was finished on Toy Story 2, he finished the first draft of the script, Six which was finalized out, and came together soon after. Correct. Uh, basically, like many of the other Pixar films we've discussed thus far, this again was a passion project of one of the earliest Pixar team members, this time Andrew Stanton, the aforementioned one here, who became enamored with the look of the clownfish and aquarium life in general. So and over lunch while they ate clownfish, they came up with this? There was no, no. lunch meeting this one. I didn't, I didn't, at least I did not that I read or heard. So. You know, it's delicious. I mean, cool <laughs> fish. But yeah, he apparently became enamored with look at the clownfish and aquarium life and became fascinated and obsessed with how it would become replicated on screen with the Pixar technology. Uh, add to that a fabled day in which Stanton took apparently his son to the park, but mm. realized afterwards he had spent way too much time worrying about his son rather than worrying about spending time with his son and the bones for the Finding Nemo script sure. were there. Excellent. Now let's talk about Pixar overall as a company. As for Pixar overall, Nemo was the fifth film made by the company and the film went on to unprecedented success for an animated film. Uh, during its time was the highest grossing animated film of all time mm. back in 2003. But the film also marked a breaking point for Disney and Pixar. There was a huge power struggle, both within Disney itself and between the two companies. Oh, yeah. And all of it, for better or worse, seemed to center around Disney CEO Michael Eisner. We've talked about him before, how he's dun, dun, dun. maybe not the easiest guy to work for or with. Right. Uh, we've talked during this part of previous Pixar shows about how Eisner's reputation of a malcontent sometimes preceded him, but he refused to back down despite Roy Disney, the lone remaining Disney heir on the Disney board at the time, attempting a power play around the time of Nemo's release. Wow. Eisner reportedly had made a history of besting others who had come for his job within the Disney offices, and even the heir to Walt himself would not be immune as Roy Disney would resign, as well as other board members, in November of 2003. I picture Steve Jobs right now. That's how it's how it read to me, too. Yeah. yeah a total behind-the-scenes power play. In, uh... Eisner is Jeff Daniels in this first <laughs> act. And then, of course, Steve. it's ironic that Steve Jobs is on the other side right. of the uh, negotiating table. But yeah, this is how it came down. And Roy Disney would resign, uh, as well as other board members did so in November of 2003, citing Eisner's refusal to do so, to resign himself, as a main reason why, and also probably the fact that said members reportedly knew Eisner had the sway and legal standing to remove them at upcoming meetings was a motivating factor. So it's like, I'm going to jump, but you should jump, but I know you're going to make me jump, so I'm jumping to save face, is how that went down. So Eisner, at Disney, bested Disney. (laughs) Kind of a big deal. Strong, willful personality. (laughs) Eisner did in fact remain, which made things not only acrimonious within the House of Mouse, but within the still Steve Jobs-owned Pixar house, too, as Eisner refused to give in to Pixar's new demands on a new deal, and actually, under the direction of Eisner, Disney went ahead with building Circle 7 Animation, which Mm -hmm. would be an in-house Disney animation studio, which were created specifically with the task of starting on sequels to Pixar-created properties that Disney still owned the rights to, One of those would have been Nemo 2. Not Finding Dory, but whatever uh, Circle 7 animations. Finding Nemo again. Right. (laughs) Finding Finding Nemo, yes. Uh, Which ultimately was just a way of rubbing Pixar's noses in their own demands as Pixar wanted a bigger slice of the monetary pie their films and hard work had been bringing in. So in short, basically, Pixar felt they had proven themselves to be more valuable a brand than Disney during this partnership that they had through their first four or so films. And they felt the capper to their argument was finding Nemo's record-breaking box office for being the highest-grossing animated film of all time at that point, like I said. Yes, sir. Thus, when it came to negotiate a new deal, they wanted to keep their own story and character rights, which they weren't able to do at that time. Disney owned all rights to characters and stories. And Pixar also wanted to reclaim the bulk of financial pie that they had given up to Disney in the original deal. Disney wouldn't hear of this, obviously, and they had no interest in going from a company that had received more than 50% of all gross that all these Pixar films did, plus distribution fees, which would be another 10 to 15% of box office on top of that, mm. to being just a distributor as Pixar wanted them to be. So this is a standoff. Well, this is a true 100% okay corral standoff. And yes. this is a big part of the book I read, so yeah. Uh, needless to say, tensions were at an all-time high, and they would actually boil over soon after Nemo was released as Steve Jobs went on the record in saying that Pixar was actively looking for a new distributor to partner up with as the time with Disney was over. He even made a, a little slight comment to the effect of, it's a shame that Disney doesn't want to be part of our future successes here at Pixar. Some intense posturing, for sure. Without question. 
question. Apparently, Jobs and Pixar never actually negotiated with any other company. It seemed like it truly was the calling of the bluff that it came to be. Uh, the fact that Finding Dory came out 13 years later under the Disney-Pixar umbrella probably gives you an indication that everything turned out okay in the end, despite, apparently, what were reported as Eisner's best efforts otherwise. Yeah, this is a big part of that book, The History of Pixar, from the CFO's perspective, they literally walk away from the negotiating yeah. table at, at a certain you know, impasse with Eisner and company. And later on, once new powers work their way into the Disney animation uh, offices that we'll get to in later episodes, they're able to figure out a deal that, that keeps everybody involved. It's it's pretty, they're victims of their own success because it seems like, in, in at least in small part, because Nemo was so record-breaking, yeah. that was actually the catalyst for Pixar to say, we, we're done with you, we don't need you, we're okay on our own. But it's a true negotiation, though, because oh, yeah. they, they do meet in the middle, and it's fascinating to look at. So that's that's an awesome backstory. I, I, I'm really, I really dig these. Yeah. Uh, I dig learning about them, and you, you obviously go much wider than, than the few books that are out there as well michael eisner not a great guy well <laughs> he, he did made a lot of good, good businessman good businessman he's maybe uh, not a great guy <laughs> yeah neither was michael corleone good business right <laughs> anyway uh, i just have one production nugget i'm doing a better job of working these in throughout Go. like i did for the cast and mm-hmm. crew and i'll have a bunch throughout the uh the non-spoiler reviews at the very least so this was something that you sent me mike uh yeah the release of the film finding nemo had the opposite effect it vied for. <laughs> Sales for Clownfish hit the roof, and there was so much demand that the Saving Nemo Com- Conservation Fund was created. That's so funny. This according to Cracked.com. Yeah. We, uh, we, we're we not good as a humanity in pers- whole, preserving <laughs> species. Movies have the same theme. Humans suck, and we <laughs> just... Make for a horrifying life for all other living creatures. Gonna look right past that text as a society and be like, no, but clownfish are cute. Clownfish are cute. And after a harrowing adventure yeah. where one clownfish is separated from another and they traverse the entire Pacific Ocean to save one another, we, are we just, buy more clownfish or put them in tanks. Smart. That report that just came out the other day that nobody is reporting on, how humans are basically going to be responsible for the extinction of one million different type of species of animals. Yeah. Nobody's talking about it. We're no. cool. We're like, well, whatever. We're humans. Everything will work out. Of course not. <laughs> we deserve, this is getting dark. We deserve the, the happening to happen to us. Oh, no. <laughs> Mike, you're going to keep talking with those specs. Yeah, all right. So fi- I'm going to do Finding Nemo and Finding Dory specs all in one shot here. Finding Nemo, Mike already told you, directed by Lee Unkrich and Andrew Stanton, written by Stanton, who gets the original story by credit. Uh, Stanton, Bob Peterson, David Rand- Reynolds all get screenplay by credits. Finding Dory had a similar but not identical setup as Stanton was back again to co-direct, this time alongside Angus McLean. Mike told you this already as well. Stanton again received the lone story by credit, while Stanton and Victoria Strauss had screenplay by credits, and Bob Peterson received additional screenplay material by credit, and finally McLean received additional story material by credits. We're screenwriting nerds, and you need to hear these things twice. <laughs> uh, Nemo came out May 30th, 2003, and 94-minute runtime on a G rating, a $94 million budget, and it did very well for itself, but we'll compare it, of course, to Dory, which debuted June 8th, 2016 at the mm. El Capitan Theater in L.A. before going wide in the U.S. the next week, June 17th. That's wild. So 13 years later, they still put it out around the same time. Yeah. May, June. They know that there's They a, know uh, that's the Dory, that's the fish month. Which was part of the Pixar, you know, Pixar wanted that those summer releases previously because they had been started as a holiday release company, and they thought there was more money to be made in the summer months. They're not wrong, apparently, yeah. with how these two films it's did. It's wild, because Ken Knapsack came on to talk Star Wars Celebration with us, right? Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how Solo, the big gaffe that they made, or the big mistake, was that they wanted to put it out in the spring. Like, that's a Star Wars uh, month yeah. in the spring. And now look at the all the sequels being literally put on the schedule right now yep. for Disney Fox. And it is December. December three years from now. December five years from now. December seven years from now. We're going to alternate Star Wars and Avatars until we all die. They're sticking with the (laughs) the months that work. Uh, Dory had a 97-minute runtime, but its production budget bloated up to a $175 to $200 million budget. Yeah. That's a lot. Water is hard to animate, and so are various (laughs) fish. Uh, Nemo raked in an 8.1 IMDb rating on 860,000-plus reviews, which ties it for 145th on IMDb's Top 250 Movies list alongside 
alongside such gems as Jurassic Park and Ingrid Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Uh, Nemo also corralled an astonishing 99% certified fresh rotten tomato rating on 263 critic reviews. Two critics actually voted it as rotten. Mm. Imagine that. You're voting Finding Nemo as a rotten movie. I want to get mad at them. I think you? they are like the critics from Ratatouille, and they need <laughs> a meal prepared by a rat to save them. 99% certified fresh rotten tomato rating alongside an 86% audience score while also scoring a 90 meta rating. Across the board, as far as critical numbers go, Dory was less of a success. Had a 7.3 IMDb score and 211,000 reviews, still scoring a highly respectable 94% certified fresh rotten tomato score and 317 critic reviews. Still, amazingly, 18 people scored it as rotten. I don't get it. It right. is a children's movie. And an 84% audience score with a 77 meta score. However, it was the lower rated film that scored higher at the box office, even though the inflation that came along as a result of the 13 year delay between films may be partially responsible. Nemo finished its run with $940 million worldwide box office, 380 of that coming domestically. Its 70 million plus domestic box office opening weekend was the fourth highest opening for the 2003 film year. And the film would finish as the second highest grossing film of 2003 overall. Overall, while being the highest grossing G rated film of that year. And it'll also be the week four earnings of Avengers Endgame. <laughs> <laughs> it finished second overall that year to one of your movies, Mike Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Yes! <laughs> it still is the seventh highest grossing animated film of all time in the US and the only animated film in the top 14 highest grossing animated films that never played more than 3,425 theaters. So it made a lot of money on not a lot of theaters, apparently, at least respectively relative to other animated films on that list. Dory did better financially. It finished with a 1.028 billion worldwide box office, including oh. 486 million of that coming domestically. It's opening nearly doubled that of Nemo's. Nemo opened at a 70 million plus domestic opening. Dory had a $135 million plus domestic opening. And even in a post-MCU world, Dory still has the 17th highest opening week for any film ever. Ever. It Ooh. would become Pixar's second highest domestic grossing film of all time, only to The Incredibles 2, which also makes it the second highest grossing animated film of all time, and still ranks within the top 10 of nine different domestic rankings on Box Office Mojo, including the eighth highest non opening Tuesday gross ever. So, of all, all films that ever made money on a Tuesday that didn't open on a Tuesday, this did the eighth best, and the fourth highest opening domestic weekend in June ever. Uh, so really, we're splitting hairs if we want to talk about which film was better or had more success. But in terms of Oscar gold, that answer is clear as Finding Nemo was nominated for four Academy Awards and won one for Best Animated Feature, whereas the best Finding Dory could do was land a BAFTA nom for the same category as it was shut out of Oscars nominating altogether. So a lot of parallels to the uh, other series we've already covered within the Pixar universe. Number one, box office goes up with the sequel. And, and that's really cool. And the critic numbers go down with the sequel uh, for, for everything except for Incredibles 2. So that's something to say about Incredibles 2, why we were so high on it last yeah. year. Uh, another fascinating thing is that these sequels are not critic-proof, and yet how I still don't get what the difference is between, like, you have flaws in Incredibles 2, and yet the flaws in these other two movies make you come out negative, literally negative. 20% of critics come out negative, 20 or more percent of critics come out negative on these sequel movies, like University. How is that an unlikable film yeah, in any way? And the same it. thing with Dory. Like, overall, we're going to have our problems with it, but it's still a likable, enjoyable film that's blockbuster entertainment that you say, check, yes, yeah. this is great. And the problems we have with it make it, more of a kids movie, I feel like. Sure, you know, do you, if that makes sense. Sure. Like, yeah, they're for they're fantastical problems. They're problems with realism, but that makes it more of a children's movie. It didn't transcend the genre, right? So it's not supposed to be a, a, a Academy Award winning drama, right? You know, like well, the first one is right, <laughs> literally. So, so I, that's what I'm, I'm saying. Like, if you're comparing it to the first one, yeah, they're different types of movies, but it's the first one I would argue is not for children, and the second one is more for children, but because it's more for children, it's more ridiculous. I, I love that analysis. Great job this week, Michael. Plot premises. We have Finding Nemo. After his son is captured in the Great Barrier Reef and taken to Sydney, a timid clownfish sets out on a journey to bring him home. Now, this is going to sound like a stupid statement, Mike, mm -hmm. but if you change some words in here, but leave the structure, yeah. this is the plot and the plot premise of Taken with Liam Neeson. <laughs> 
You're not wrong. I am not wrong. You're not wrong. I am not wrong. Take out the word timid and then just change the nouns. I will find you and I will kill you. Finding Dory, premise reads, the friendly but forgetful blue tang fish Dory begins a search for her long lost parents and everyone learns a few things about the real meaning of family along the way. So That one even sounds like more of a children's movie. Right. And I like both premises. They both work. This is where I'm really interested right now. For expectations, Mike. Yeah. How much did you love these films going back? And in the rewatch, is it your hardened heart as an Oscar critic demanding transcendence of the genres that gets you a little bit down on the sequel here? Or are you just someone who'd never loved these i despise the transcending the genre argument as i've been on record you too saying, and I, yet I you're it. a thorough hypocrite because that's why you're getting mad at dory yep uh <laughs> <laughs> I to be. well no i I, yeah. I really hate that that that's a tent but I think you it's don't a lazy come down argument, negative no i i don't i enjoyed both films right. i don't think i ever saw dory previously to be honest i've seen nemo gotcha um i don't remember nemo being as dark as it was but yeah. uh you know they're made for kids. That's what people forget. Like, yes, Pixar is so amazing and magnanimous, and they're they really are a truly you know history making company, and they know how to make films, and they're great storytellers. But first and foremost, you got to get the kids in the theater, and the parents will accompany, right? So yeah, you need these big, bright, colorful, nonsensical storylines at times to make kids laugh. Big, bright, colorful storylines. I'm with you on that fact. I just think Finding Nemo is a horror film. It is a horror <laughs> you, film you are You are more uh, uh, hardened about Nemo. You're like, your Nemo to you is what The Incredibles was for me. I'm less hard on Nemo, but I understand your I argument. I still, I really respect Nemo. I am shocked right. at how thoroughly petrified I was this entire film. Yeah. And I wonder if it played on dads taking their kids to the movies back then, but I was never a big fan of either of these movies watching really? them. I remember watching them and be like, all right, fine, good. I'm like you always say, it's fine. Yeah, it's there. It's yeah. there. It's good. Good enough. Nice time at the movies. Uh, but I think these rewatches are pretty important to the overall Pixar rewatch story for me and for us here because this cements the fact that they are feeling themselves over oh, yeah. at Pixar. Oh, yeah. And they are going to tell the stories they want to tell and they don't flip and care. Nah. If it's a horror story, an old school fairy tale where you're going to come across just ruthless predators Mm -hmm. at every turn and terrifying existential nightmares around every plot point in both movies, they don't care. As long as it's bright and, and and, and happy looking for the most part. It's, it'll play for kids well enough, just like you said yeah. with Incredibles 1. Like, these themes, they, they no. the, the subject matter of the story Absolutely makes not. no sense. And this is a survival tale, <laughs> like, unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, Mike, we talked about Pet Cemetery, which is a horror survival tale in terms of grief and dealing with all that. I mean, the, 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 the backstory is the same for both films. Andrew Stanton's like, I went to a place of play and I was afraid <laughs> for my son. Yeah. And Stephen King's like, I went to Maine and there's a big front yard with no fence and I was afraid for my son and both films have the same backstory and it's just insane to me how they both live in that POV and I really can't wait to get into it so yeah I'm with you I, I, I don't I mean you you took the words out of my mouth for the most part there and that this is I like again doing that well I also think there's something to be said about Pixar. And you have, uh, to first, have more words in your mouth. I do. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Pixar certainly found an audience for this, even though it's an overly serious movie. Oh yes, they you did. Know? I mean, this was a record-breaking movie. Yes. And it's funny how, okay, we start with the kids' movies with Toy Story. You know, we start with this is like Pixar's fifth film, sixth film was The Incredibles, or sixth and seventh, and so we're getting more serious and more avant-garde and artory sure. with these films. But we're going to still flex our muscles and prove their success, just like you said. And we're going to basically... This was... They were slowly deviating from a Disney playbook at this point. And they were like, we can stand on our own and tell our own stories that Disney otherwise probably wouldn't have told. To me, they went darker than most Disney yeah. films. I mean, you think about Aladdin, you know, and Happy. That's a happy film for the most part. You think about Little Mermaid. I mean, Lion King gets a little dark. I yes, say. yes. But very few of them get as dark and as ominous and fate's worse than death in the middle of these movies yeah. 
never mind the end of these movies. So the dilemmas are there. Let's get into production yep. values, though, first. I mean, look, beautiful, happy, fun-looking. The colors pop. This is a real fantasy world, even though it's a world that we know really exists, which just really works on the mind. I, I love the visual experience, and I just, I'm so glad at the new TV in my house, and I'm loving every second of it. Uh, Fish Designs, Mike, they decided to add eyebrows. They decided to incorporate the structures, the, uh, the, the structures of character faces from other Disney movies, mm -hmm. from dogs they have. Huh they have drawn in the past because they said like all right the fish eyebrow eye first of all there's no eyebrow in a fish the <laughs> eyelid structure is just dead eyes insect right so the same thing they kind of had to do that with a bug's life where they made it more humanistic i would say in this movie they they're like we can't make it humanistic but we'll make it canine like huh. and that's how they figured out how to allow these fish to emote because they're like well, fish don't emote. Right. They don't do that <laughs> in real life. So they, they had to do a lot of things. It's fascinating to watch these animators talk, though, because they also would hang out around pet stores and ask them for the dead tropical fish because a lot of fish die at pet stores, Jesus. unfortunately. So buy all those fish and take them home. Yeah. So I guess that's better than... You know, it's better to have them in the... In so the, they were just buying corpses of tropical fish? And they were basically dissecting them to figure out how... Disney! Anatomy worked. <laughs> they were doing science Christ. experiments, like a fifth grade class, science class, and they were basically figuring out how their anatomies work, how their scales reacted with light, and that, that they did that a lot, especially with the clownfish. So it was amazing to hear these animated animators talking about all these things. How expensive and time-consuming the splash shots were in both films just blew my mind. Because you don't even think about that. Because you have, they said, maybe 800 scenes where you could put, 800 shots where you can put a splash of water in them. And the splash of water is something that take takes like a month to oh, am geez. animate. So they don't, they, they went for much less. Mm. Like these guys are like, all right, we can't do 800 scenes. But when we do a big splash scene, let's go crazy with it Dive they filmed it. real water to make this happen and they like mapped it or something i, I could I, it blew my mind it's above uh, our pay grade too way it? above yeah. our pay grade i don't know how they did it but they they actually took the properties of water and they put it in an animated form it's funny how obsessed about the little things this company is i mean we talked about them the one thing that's going to stick with me forever after we're done with this series is their obsession with hair and sully's hair from monsters inc and the movement of each individual hair on this giant furry beast yes and this is the same thing how they're you know we're making a movie about fish and aqua life and all this and let's let's concentrate on the actual impact of water droplets sure. i mean can you imagine making a movie where all right we have to animate the air <laughs> Because basically right, the right. water is the yeah. air for these fish. And they have to animate all the negative space, too. And yeah. it's insane. It's just absolutely insane. So they come up with computer programs to figure out how the water is going to react. And obviously they have to animate when the water reacts big. So it, it's just incredible. It took them two years to figure out the animation of Hank the Octopus in Finding Dory. Uh, it took a whole team to figure out both the squish and the drip of all of his movements. They put different joints in the tentacles and they kept changing up those joints for different scenes. So that like in making huh. the models, they would structure like normal elbow joint or, right. you know, and a hand joint, right? like a wrist joint to the tentacle. And then another scene, they would move the joints. So this way that the, the octopus is reacting differently in different scenes. And it was just amazing. Like you watch real octopus octopi climb over sand right, right. it's just like a it's just like water falling off a wall yeah it like takes like, the shape of what it's throw, yeah on, throwing yeah. jelly on a wall yeah. and then watching the jelly smush down all, all, over your picture frame or something that's an octopus and to make this work and then do the whole camouflage thing absolutely mind-blowing see they do that they do all this work about like having putting years of research and development and animation into having an octopus look lifelike and move right and then they go the ridiculous stuff of having it traverse the ceiling going from beam to beam <laughs> in a way that no octopus ever has right. so there's nothing for us to relate it to anyway correct <laughs> I, we're gonna be with you there so we're, we're getting there uh in terms of sound though i mean that's sight i mean sight, the sight is just uh, it blows me away oh uh, yeah it's i mean this is it's unparalleled and i know it's getting a little uh, you know, how many different ways can we say throughout 20-some-odd Pixar movies that this site is just so breathtaking? On, on that alone, like, 
that should be worth a positive review. That of alone, course, Mike, that's yeah, it's worth fifty one percent. Yes, it's worth a passing C plus grade. Never. So these and we're critics, talking about if like if the rest of the movie was in gibberish, right. <laughs> you know, like I mean, it's ridiculous how people like love Luc Besson's yeah. work for his visuals, and they're gonna give something a positive grade just based on that, and then the story's dreck, or and they hate, and they they still like it. Yeah, and then it's double standard city. Of but course, it is. In terms of getting into sound, obviously the sound effects we went over that in the, in the Incredibles and how they're making all these sound effects fascinating watch again watch special features my words of wisdom from the last pod yeah. but the music for this is a lot like a lullaby and it also flows with the sea it's it's just really hypnotic and I something it's not something I necessarily noticed on the first watch but it's it's emotional and I listened to the scores on YouTube this morning, and I'm like, wow, they're, they're, these are excellent. I actually thought the score for Dory was better than Nemo. It's something I had written down in my they're notes. They're terrific. I thought it was, uh, you know, and again, because maybe it's tough to have a an overly horror-themed score I mean, that appeals to kids. To me, this is psychologically as, as scary as, like, the diving bell and the butterfly. Yeah. It is psychologically as scary as Memento, as some of the most cra- the craziest psychological thrillers it also plays era. on your guilt. Like, whether you're yes. a, an overly protective father, if you were raised by an overly protective father, oh, yes. if you're an independent kid, if you're a kid that takes chances, that doesn't like upsetting their parents. Like, there's a lot of manipulation, emotional manipulation with guilt Both in this films movie. films are yeah. two-hour-long guilt trips. Yeah. yeah, I agree. In terms of the performances, I just, I love how they fit the characters to the species, and I love how they fit some of the personalities of the characters to those fish and the octopus. Like, a clownfish doesn't like to leave the their sea anemones and right so they don't like to leave their home so that that this clownfish is not just a play on words where he's not funny but he's named a clownfish <laughs> i know funny no he's like an isolationist he's yeah. like i'm gonna i gotta stay home my homebody and i don't want to leave and of course like they like we talked about with the last two rules of pixar challenge your characters with what they are least equipped to handle yeah that's what you have here uh Mike, I'm shocked to see these characters have mental and medical conditions like they have here. <laughs> it's smart. Illness. It's smart. And part of the re- you know, it's one thing to have the characters that represent those, but part, it's also they go out of their way to incorporate storylines that have don't judge a book by its cover and don't hold these types of things against people that are suffering from any kind of mental condition or physical ailment or stuff. I mean, right off the bat, we're introduced to Nemo, who has a physical deformity with sure. a smaller fin. And it's it's almost said in passing because it's not it never holds him back. These are important characters that have been through trauma yeah. as well as just the day to day. They can't do normal things. So these are characters that are handy capable mm-hmm. in many ways, and they're also just characters that in the prologues of both films. I mean, you're going through like what Bambi went through, you're, and what Littlefoot went through in Land Before Time. You're going through the most terrifying things imaginable. Fate's worse than death right off the bat. Yeah. Right off the bat in the first scenes. Those are the dilemmas on top of these parents in these scenes. So just utterly horrifying. And to make these characters still funny, able to joke and make you laugh at the end of the day is just a feat of storytelling strength. And there's your relatability them. because it, it's all in how people grieve and deal with heartache and upsetness. Yeah. And you just, you, life moves on. <laughs> Taking a, a quote from Captain America in Endgame, you got to find a way to move on, right? If I mean, that's gonna, kind of the thing. If you're going to anthropomorphize, <laughs> this is the way to do it, I would say, because this is really going all out. Uh, it's fascinating to listen to Angus McLean talk about Dory. Uh, quote, Dory has short-term memory loss, but she has terrific emotional rememory, And that is true for her character. you got strength and weakness there. And, you know, the seesaw of when you de- underdevelop one, you overdevelop mm-hmm. the other. So that's fascinating. That actually really, when I heard that after watching the film, I actually give that character a lot more credit. So I thought it was worth mentioning yeah. non-spoilers here. Last thing I want to say uh, is that Marlon, his character is kind of frustrating, but it, it's very clear based on the backstory that Stanton is just leaning into the fact that he's telling a story from his POV. And again, that's it is something that I think they don't do as well with Finding Dory. Like, well, I it wish. works. That's what I, the point I was going to make. It works in the first movie, too, because you have Dory, who's not a main character. Right. She's an ancillary character. So Dory, you, you the whole point of Dory in the first movie is to, like, fall in love with her. Right. And so Marlon being overly 
for lack of a better word, a dick at some points, it plays well with Dory's innocentness and aloofness and how it helps us relate to her more. The problem is they had to keep that as her main uh, attributes throughout the second movie and it kind of falls apart a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Marlon, what's the difference between his characterization and at least where he starts and every adult in an 80s movie? When, right. it, when it's a sure. kid's movie or coming base. And he does go through trauma here. I mean, Christ, he loses his wife and then he loses his child. True, true. So it, all of their tics and all their neuroses are shown. I mean, you get it. You don't blame them right. for it at all. So that's fast. It's another fascinating way that Pixar just gets you sympathetic to mm-hmm. the main characters right off the bat. I just think, you know, with Dory, this is, these are male filmmakers, dads, high-functioning. This is a good point you're making, yeah. Men, mm-hmm. right? It's noble that they're trying to tell a female-centric story about Dory in the second movie, and yet they don't give her any real flaws, so I'm going to have a problem with that. She's not really a rounded character, and and that, that's the biggest issue with that movie. Whereas Marlon, like you said, literally a dick in most of the scenes, he has an arc where, where he really has to learn and change things about himself. Dory doesn't have to change things about herself. She has to realize powers that she already has. Now, it's important to note, too, like I said in the specs, Victoria Strauss was, does have a screenplay by credit for Dory. So there was a woman in the writing's room and at least gets a main credit for Good. the screenplay. So that was needed. And I think that's what kind of, I, I don't want to say it saved it. I don't know if it's a movie that needed saving, but it did help. Dory wasn't so one note there and did I don't know that she had any glaring flaws, and that's an issue we're going to talk about in spoilers. I mean, obviously, we, we reviewed a movie. Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. Every female character has a hundred things, right? Where they're a little wrong. They're in the wrong. Never mind. Never mind. They have things wrong with them that mm-hmm. they have to deal with and overcome. But they are in the wrong a hundred times in each film. Now, because that's, that's a human being, right? Well, here's here's the, these I, fish are not human enough no, for me. Here's the yeah. Well, here's the, the devil's advocate. The counter to that is that. Do you hold that against this movie knowing that it's a kid's movie? Like, do you want that from... Is that a, a tentpole of every story you tell to have characters with flaws and relatable flaws? Woody and Buzz or is it a kid's them. movie? Yeah, well, that's a good point. You know, that's a good point. That, uh, Mike Wazowski has them. Yeah. And these other Pixar... But Three it's male sa- characters. It's a safe space for the middle-aged white yeah. man right. making the movie to make a uh, make a story. and they, they feel comfortable enough to make a, give flaws to the middle-aged white characters. They they don't feel comfortable enough. Like even with Nemo, like what does Nemo do wrong other than all right? He has a temper tantrum with his dad at the beginning of the first movie. What a kid. Well, that's that's a different. It's a argument. kid. What right? do kids do wrong? You know what right. can kids do wrong? Well, kids can be shitty, shitty kids. Macaulay Culkin and the Good Son. <laughs> yeah, but kids kids do wrong just the same way though. That's what I'm saying. I I think they do. I think I remember myself as a kid. I have my brothers could tell you all the crap I pulled on. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you must have been a Oh, nightmare. I was an ass. I you're, was a yeah. total ass. Yeah, you you're still, right. you, yeah, we still are. Yeah. We both still are. So this is what people do. This is what characters need to be more So rounded. even though it's a kid's movie, quote unquote, and we'll say it for the just the genre, if it's a, it's a cartoon kid's movie, you still, regardless of genre, you need characters with faults. Well, I, I need rounded characters. And unfortunately, I think, you know, Dory deals with doubt, panic, fear, symptoms of her condition. And obviously, you are very sympathetic to those uh, in both movies for her. Yep. And, and it's understandable. Whereas we're dealing with a father whose behavior in the first movie is just reprehensible, right? So it really needs to, when you have flaws for a character, it needs to become their behavior. And their behavior must change at the end of the movie because, like a, a psychological journey, like we do with our therapists, like we do on a daily basis, you need to figure out things about yourself, become aware of them mm. so that you can start to change them. And it's fascinating how Dory is, is a case where she deals and she comes up with a million strategies and she realizes and remembers with all their emotional memory. And I'm going to have a great arc for her character. And it's, again, it's noble, but it's just it's not the same kind of drama from that POV. It's almost like they're afraid to tackle that POV. So that's that's interesting to me. Yeah. Unlike George R. R. Martin with Tyrion, with Bran, these are handy capable <laughs> characters who uh, have a million flaws to them. Different. Fuck Bran. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe we got there and finding Nemo Dory, but I think we're ready to dance because I kind of said all my uh, final non yeah. thoughts and script thoughts already. Going to be a long one today. Let's uh, let's get that spoiler warning. Yeah. Spoilers ahead. Thank you. 
so much jammer. <laughs> Welcome to your time on this rock. Comfortable, isn't it? <laughs> time to go get off, get off, get off. This is a spoiler warning. This is the spoiler section for the Pixar Rewatch series brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar covering the Finding series, Finding Nemo, Finding Dory. Uh, if you've not seen these movies, it's a good place for you to hit pause. Go watch the movies. Come back. We'll be here waiting for you when you get here to hit play. If you've seen the movies already, if you're just curious about what we have to say about them or if we've hyped the spoiler section up for you so much in the non-spoiler section that you cannot possibly go another minute without hearing what happens, this is where you want to be. All spoilers all the time. The Pixar Rewatch series covering Finding Nemo and Finding Dory brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. How we start the spoiler section every one of these pixar rewatch movies is we go through more rules of the 22 rules of screenwriting success success from pixar and we're covering two today michael two rule number seven and eight uh first of all though i did have a temptation just to compare these two narrative structures to like some of the best psychological thrillers going in our past <laughs> and for some of the best action movies like finding nemo you could compare it to taken it's yes. totally compared to Liam Neeson's Taken, which is, has horror elements. You could totally compare Finding Nemo to The Silence of the Lambs, in fact. Oh, at Jesus. least in raw elements. I mean, <laughs> Dory would be Hannibal Lecter in that regard, but I'm not, I'm not going to go there. But it, it, it is interesting how just your raw elements of storytelling. Fava beans and Chianti. Fava beans and Chianti. It's there. I mean, it's, you meet Hannibal Lecter kind of the same time. Well, you meet him a little later. You meet Dory a little later, but you meet him close to the same time <laughs> in the story structure. I don't know what that says R. about L. you. R.L. is like nodding <laughs> his head big right now. Listen to a friend of the pod there, screenwriting professor. Anyway, uh, rules of Pixar storytelling. Number seven, come up with your ending before you figure out your middle. Seriously, endings are hard. Get yours working up front. And when I think, when they talk about this, when they talk about ending, I think they're talking about, you know, climax. So your climax, the film climax, act three climax, you're talking about a dilemma. All right. You want a fate worse than death, irreconcilable goods, lesser of two evils. Great job by Finding Nemo coming up with the uh, dilemma here, Mike, because you have. At the ending, not only does you have do you have a clownfish that has to learn to leave the nest and learn mm -hmm. to leave the anemone, but you have a clownfish that has to, in biblical ways, allow his son to save others, to risk his life. Nemo risks his life with that net, yeah, to save other fish. So after going through all they've done, the doing storylines, all they finally done, get reunited. Yeah, it's just it, taking it to eleven here. To the end of the line, not only must they, him and his son, fight to you know to reunite, like Land Before Time, like Homeward Bound, mm -hmm. like all these kids' movies, right, where the animal must get home or the the kid must get home, but now the character must save others. You have to son. let him go immediately. Yeah, yeah, uh, which Unbelievable. is unrealistic. <laughs> no, that father is not doing In that. The that accelerated quickly. time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably right. I had an issue with, with just the timing of that. But yes, you're right. As a as a rule and as an arc for the character, yes, it works. It works in the sense that it is, it is something more than it's what, proper. Just, what, yeah. what happened. It's what, it's what should happen as opposed to what probably would happen. Right, but you, you're probably right in the sense that... I mean, well, here's the thing. They just traversed the ocean to help each other. Right. And they just kind of exactly. threw out everything that, to help each other and, and, and taken so many risks. So the risks do escalate. I it's a double-edged sword because all the reasons that uh, you Marlon has been proven to that he should let Nemo go yeah. are exactly all the reasons why he wouldn't. <laughs> like, they just went through this big harrowing experience. He traversed the entire ocean. Can you Nemo imagine? had to escape, you know. Can you imagine if they just pulled all those fish up and they swam away and that was the end of the movie, though? <laughs> I would have appreciated it. That would be more realistic. You're probably right, but this is a story of New Testament proportions. Yes. So the, the Nemo saves those fish from being eaten, and the father helps, which is great, right. too. And I think that factors into the theme. In Finding Dory, she must follow the lessons she's learned and the strategies she's learned in the face of being totally lost. Mm -hmm. And that's psychologically terrifying. Number one. But it, it, when she does that, she's able to figure her way out of that act three, break in act three, because she is literally back where she started. Now, the problem with this is it's a bit circular for her character. That's where she was at, at the beginning of Finding Nemo. 
I didn't shoot. mind that, to be honest. I really didn't because I, I you did a good job of leading up to that point, I thought, throughout the entire movie, which is always she's saved at the last second by there being another character there to help her along the way until right. finally she is totally. And they isolated. rationalize that by a couple characters like Fish just swimming by, Nope, I can't help right. you. Nope, I can't help you. But this character this character right. will. You'll have a good Samaritan after four people that are just getting on their way. And there is convenient arguments that come out of it that like, oh yeah, this is my pen pal from way back in the day that I've never seen until just the second. Well, I loved it because yeah. the whole movie is structured. So I don't say it's unrealistic. However, I do say it is fortunate because yes. obviously she could have been lost in another way mm-hmm. where she's not close to breadcrumbs or shells where she, right. you know, figures things out again. But I think it, it it's emotional. I mean, we're going to talk about heartbreaks. That's my biggest one. When she's just out there in nowhere. Oh, sure. She's like, oh, my God, I'm lost. This is what I'm good at. I'm getting lost. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm almost tearing up. Mm -hmm. It's it's rough. So uh, I I I think that rule plays for Finding Dory as well. It's just a little less plausible, and we're going to get into that now. Mike, rule number eight. Finish your story. Let go, even if it's not perfect. In an ideal world, you have both but move on, do better next time. And I feel like huh. these, you know, again, this is speaking to the writing process. It's it's supposed to be encouraging to the writer. And I love how these rules of storytelling, one is about formula, and the other one, I know people don't like the word formula, but it exists, template, formula, whatever. One is about the nitty-gritty of how to write something and what your structure mm. you need. And the other is about your mindset, your screenwriting mindset. And it's just back and forth, back and forth. So I love these rules for that reason. So this is a motto that seems to apply to Finding Dory. I just wish they, you know, didn't follow it. <laughs> <laughs> because they kind of leave things implausible. It's not perfect. And, and that's okay. But and maybe they did let go with Finding Dory. They they let go of having to stick to realism. They just wanted to have it to be more fantastical kids movie. I would say they definitely they weren't as worried about this time uh, making a statement. Those those kind of those chains those restrictions were off. You had the thirteen year lead in. Pixar was already well established. They knew what they were doing. They were purchased by Disney. There was nothing to prove to a corporate overlord. You know a Pixar movie is going to be a success. You know a sequel to a Pixar movie after thirteen years is going to make a bajillion dollars. So they were less inhibited for just from the jump with Dory as it is. I think that happens with the plausibility. You know, I mean, the first movie, it's a bit more pl- plausible. Much. I, I mean, the thematics work in both films. Sure. But the second movie, you have Octopus and Fish driving car or truck. Right. After driving stroller. And that's a big leap. Through crowds. Yes. Driving stroller through crowds and doing a terrible job. Driving car wrong way down highway. Not crashing. If they took... (laughs) If it was just in a parking lot, maybe... (laughs) Like a driving instructor, and you can, you know, made fun of student drivers and something like that, or whatever. Or if the octopus was just trying to, like, poke a kid (laughs) driving a car. Right. And, you know, I think they could have gotten more creative with how they could have, you know, driven left or right. And. But maybe they just let it go. Because the end of Toy Story (laughs) 1, how plausible is that? It's very plausible. Sure. Right? I mean, even though we have truck escaping down street. But they're not, they don't get that far. They're like a block away. Right. So it's not like all that wonderfulness, all that magical, you know, finale ness happens within a block of the house. So it's not as scary and it's not as ridiculous. You don't have to jump, you know, you don't, you don't have to drive a car if you're an octopus <laughs> to solve this problem. I love the, but here's the thing like the, the, why it works thematically, why it still works, even though it's imperfect, is that Dory basically has to, remember everything she's learned which is a feat of strength in terms of storytelling for a character that can't remember so she has to learn she has to remember that basically forging relationships is the way to go being alone is not the way to go she made all these friends and now she has to remember to use all those friends after she finds her parents i mean that's a great just a great metaphor for life in general like when you cultivate one relationship typically you're able to cultivate more right and that's when other relationships matter and that's why you need all relationships and this is something we should follow as two people ourselves disagree (laughs) (laughs) no you're right of course it makes sense and that's part of what makes it the story as ridiculous as the plot gets at times it is relatable and believable because you are still speaking to very adult not even adult but just human things human themes so it works bottom line is it works so Let's get into some heartbreaks first here, Mike. 
Both prologues are soul crushing. That the first one from Nemo. I mean, oh God. as someone who was raised by a bit of an overprotective father, sure. Uh, seeing when you have that mindset, you're trying to prevent against everything. That when anything goes wrong, because it will, because life happens, yeah. it just makes it that much worse because you thought you were protected against everything, which is an impossibility. And just, you know, anything that goes wrong is the worst possible thing that can go wrong. Yeah. And just seeing that and, and ha- having lived through that, that was very relatable for me. And that really spoke to me having Marlon lost his kid after trying to prevent everything bad, anything bad from happening to him. So imagine if a barracuda ate your mom and brother. <laughs> what your dad would have been, a train wreck. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Just ridiculous how these stories unfold. And yeah, I was like, <gasps> I can't believe yeah. we're dealing with that. Uh, then if I'm Dory, yeah, a life of wandering around in fear and confusion is going to make me forever terrified, forever doubtful of myself. Yeah. Especially when my emotions tell me that I've already lost so much. And the beginning of little cute Dory with her parents and you know she's going to lose them. My God, Mike. Look, let me say this about Lil' Cute Dory. Nemo is great. He's adorable. Uh, he, he's, he's a perfect protagonist. He's a little little hero, okay? I, I would follow young Dory into a cave of fire. I would lay my life yeah. on the line for that character. Yeah. That is the most adorable thing in the history of cinema. <laughs> little bewildered the most, Dory there the who doesn't know what's adorable. going on at any time. They did a, that, that is emotional manipulation 101. Gage Creed, but and the parents are Lewis and Rachel Creed. There's, there's a slipstream, just like the road. Yes, and it's the same as Pet Cemetery. Yes. It's the same thing. It's the same beginning as Pet Cemetery. That's why I compared them to. Could have taken a hard turn though if Young Dory was killed and came back as a ghost. Yeah, it would have been a different movie, but same raw elements of right. the plot structure. Uh, Marlon and Nemo when they're on that truck to Cleveland and Dory is swept up in the pipes and just existent she's lost in space i I just can't that that ripped my heart out i was almost in tears at that moment like after all we've been through however nonsensical for her to get lost all again all start from square one all over that was just existentially my nightmare yeah yeah i i'm with you there that scared the shit out of me uh prior to that prior to the truck where we have this We've never been put in the first-person POV at any point through any, either of these two movies. Right. And then all of a sudden, as Hank the Octopus is trying to get Dory free in yeah. quarantine, Hank gets caught, Dory's glass shatters on the ground, and will per- put in her perspective, as we watch her watch Hank get taken away, watch the water around her spread yeah. out on the ground, she gets sucked into the pipes. This is all happening as as if we're experiencing it from the first... And yeah, it's that is just emotional. It's Sam Raimi at the beginning of Every Evil Dead. It's that POV with (laughs) the camera going fast like that. I I can't get over it. I mean, they use horror movie filmmaking styles to pull this off, and it's it's incredible. Uh, Happiness, though. Um, Both, uh, you know, prologues are sad. The epilogues are joyful. I mean, we want to just live in that. Of course. Like, let's have a cartoon series just live in the happy fun land that is... You know, Dora the Explorer finding Nemo. Style. And there's these like mother goose type lessons that are so obvious, and we they're almost tropey in yeah. how overused they are, but they're presented in these wholly unique ways. You know, don't judge a book by its cover. The handy, capable aspect of people that have uh, any kind of physical or mental limitations, sure. and, and they're just because you are presented these characters in these relatable human ways, it makes it that much more believable that we buy into their journeys and then we do cheer when they come out on the other side that's why it's tough mm-hmm. to for to like as unbelievable as what happens in dory is to say it's not a good movie or to say anything like to say an octopus driving a truck down the wrong way of the highway disqualifies makes, yeah, it, makes right. it a bad movie or a bad kids movie is ridiculous i agree i totally agree and when nemo and marlin find each other at the end of the first movie when nemo dory and marlin find each other at the at the towards the end of act two of finding dory you know you talked about how heart-wrenching everything is leading up to it but uh, the heart warming i mean these are cold fish 
but the heartwarming <laughs> nature. Uh, I'm nearly tearing up in both films. Those were great scenes, and they crescendo to the point where, oh my god, they're back together. Yeah. It's Game of Thrones-like. Oh my god! Yeah, you're not wrong. It's as good as together. any drama because of the investment that we have. And they, If one thing Pixar does well, yes, there's storytelling, yes, it's graphics, but emotional manipulation yeah. stop not. So a movie that makes you feel that, how is that a bad movie? Again, right. I agree with you. And, and one story finds her parents... Holy crap. Yeah, near tears. I mean, your, your hair is standing up on your arms. If you have any kind of relationship with a parental-like figure in your life, you can relate to that story. So any more best and worst scenes here, Mike? Uh, I got a few bests, and I, I've really been listing my worst along the way. So yeah, I, what do you want to take first? Just to talk about best, the homages to other genres and other movies that we hear, we get like the Mission Impossible type explanation <laughs> in the first Finding Nemo movie yeah. as the Will, Willem Dafoe characters describing the plot to break free, and we see the montage laid out in front of us of how it should go. Of course, it doesn't because e- it never does. Everything in that dentist's office is wonderful. I really really love it. The Darla character, speaking about horror elements, Scary! she rips open the door and we get the psycho music. <laughs> <laughs> that I, was hilarious. It made me Great. laugh. So you could tell that we're dealing not only with students of, of this edge of their seat technology. But their homage is to Hitchcock, right, literally exactly. with that. They're and students also of with cinema. The, the seagulls. Oh yeah. The seagulls, that's the scariest scene I've watched all year in movie going. See, I'm sick because I, those may be my favorite characters in cinema history. Mine! Mine! Oh my, my mine! God, they're gonna <laughs> peck you to death! That's just, that's literally physically, physically uh, terrible. I could watch a whole movie about Can that. Can you imagine dying <laughs> worse? Can you imagine dying worse? And uh, it's just ridiculous. Yes. You're right. But uh, again, I mean, that's the highlight. That's some other best for me. The seagulls. Whether you love them or are horrified by them, they serve their purpose. They're memorable. The seals in Finding Dory, the Aegis, Elba, Dominic yeah, West characters, hilarious. oh, they're hysterical. Hilarious. Absolutely hysterical. You could say the same about the whales, the Caitlin Olsen, Tyber L whales. The turtles are fun. Yeah, too, so, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Movie, uh, so, whatever they do, whatever, I don't know if they're based on one human emotion, if they're personification of characteristics or whatever, but whatever they do with these ancillary characters work to the nth degree for me. And the creature feature scares are terrifying. Yeah. The deep sea in the first movie, which was the height of horror in that movie, mm-hmm. I thought, and visually it was scary. It was just scary all the around. Sharp teeth. Never mind the, you know, the, the old U-boats and the bombs and the mines in the Pacific <laughs> Ocean there. Good God. But then you end in the second movie, you're going through an aquarium. And who are the big bad guys? What's the height of horror in the aquarium? It's where the kids are poking. Poker's <laughs> Cove. That was so well done. Poker's yeah. Cove. Yeah. Don't go in there with all the other fish. And then talk about a fate worse than death. Another one right in the middle of that movie. The octopus can't move. He's terrified. He's under the rock. And all the kids are poking the fish. Can you tell that these guys don't like aquariums? <laughs> <laughs> the Good makers point. of these movies Good think point. they're evil and wrong, and kids are basically the worst. Oh, we had another homage we didn't even talk about, but obviously Pinocchio getting swallowed by the whale. True. Yeah, I mean, that's right there. In, Jonah, in Pinocchio. There, Again, yeah. biblical stuff yep. worked in as well, and and that's scary. The, the, the whale has to swallow you to blow it out its blowhole. And, and, the, and, of course, Marlon doesn't want to get swallowed. The two-movie-long arc about whether Dory actually can speak whale or not, mm. that's finally answered at the end of Finding Dory, sure. I thought was very clever, too. So, this all, I, of course, this is good. There's goods here. This is so silly to say that this movie's rotten at all. Those critics need a, they need a reality check. I agree. What do they I think agree. they were watching? Now, that's not to say there weren't bad things. We talked about, you know, the octopus. We talked the, the whole baby stroll. The octopus that is a ninja... <laughs> is a little much it's to take. It's a little much. And you said, you know, the the whole... Ex- the escape scenes in Finding Dory are redonkulous. Just, Ridiculous. Absolutely. Absolutely absurd. Like the bird, and yeah. And especially because we just had a whole 97-minute movie prequel where it is fairly realistic, and now we're relying on water spouts throughout a park to bou- have fish bounce off them to get across a parking lot. Yeah, it's I mean, ridiculous. the most unrealistic things about the first movie is that the pelicans are helpers, and they're also <laughs> fascinated by the dentistry. They're basically they're basically dental students, all those fish, <laughs> which is funny, but the fact that the pelican is also there to be a yeah, dental student right. is ridiculous. And in the second movie, no, it's Marlin will jump into, you know, a bunch of squirts of water on, like, a little kid's playground or, or that squirts. Or that is school of otters can break into a truck 
<laughs> Never mind that an octopus um, can drive a truck, but that otters how, can just open up the back of a otters truck. Otters eat fish. Yeah, Why know. wouldn't the otters like immediately just eat all the fish? Like, no, a cuddle party, of course. Right. But a how do they get party. the help? It's so great. It's great. But how do they get the help of the otters? Right. Yeah, apparently otters and fish speak the same language. But speak the same language, want to help each other. It's we're all saying all these, world. like, these are our biggest problems, and we're saying them all with smiles on our faces. You yes, know? We so, yes, we are. Yes, we are. That's, you can't, if you're going to be a dick and talk about that is what keeps this from transcending the genre. Yeah. Then screw you. <laughs> Honestly, you know, like, this movie's not for you in the first place. True. Uh, so any final thoughts? I have one, Mike, based on the Nemo sequels. Go ahead. What? What? How scared are we of the sequels? <laughs> what could because possibly it, happen it's next? It's either going to be like global warming-ish. It has to be global warming, and right? And it's like chasing coral, which is utterly terrifying, and all the coral reefs are dying, and the fish have to leave their home. Or we're thrushed, thrust or thrushed into a Japanese fishing nightmare, and we're basically having Nemo forced to save all the dolphins and killer whales. I was going to say whale. Yeah, whale hunters. Well, that could be the next one, too. Those are yeah. both utterly just, it, it just, my bones just break in terror, terror. You know, yeah, it's terrifying, but it also could be a, a very significant uh, way to address the message. Because political leanings aside, global warming is a real thing. And the more eyes we get towards people uh, realizing that it's a real thing is a good thing. Yeah. I'm running out of ways to tell you these movies scare me. My oh, they're bone, terrifying. My bones break in terror. They are absolutely <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> they are terrifying. So, I would, now you you would say with that, Nemo was scarier than Dory? Well, here's the thing. Like, psychologically, Dory just scares me. Like, that's my greatest fear is being locked in my own head. Which, as a writer, probably means I probably shouldn't be a writer. Maybe that's why it hasn't worked out so far. The blank page scares me the most. But the being just not able to move with the diving bell and yeah, the butterfly no, that or not makes... being able to remember, like, Alzheimer's scares the shit out of me. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. That's, My God. Yeah. My God, my Yeah, all right. Harrowing movies, but still... Very, very well done and very still fun, very somehow. fun movies yeah. as well. Yes, and uh, we want to hear them from you. Are you a fan of the Dory and Nemo movies? Did you grow up watching them? If not, have you seen them yet? Uh, if, if yes or no, what kept you from seeing them? What made you want to see them in the first place? We want to hear all your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns about this? Any other Pixar rewatch series move, uh, episode that we did covering the any other movies? We're gonna have another Pixar rewatch for you this week. We're going to have. Uh, some other episode this week. We're not entirely sure what it is yet. We have an idea, but we're not, ideas, yeah, yeah, we have a couple ideas batting around. We have a, a whole what if series coming up that we're very excited to unveil. Uh, and we got uh, more interviews and fun stuff in the pipeline as well. More core reviews. Yeah, big announcement. In, I think the next episode too about a uh, collaboration we're doing mm. uh, live stream for the Cure. So we'll just mention that now. We're going to be on May 18th with the Epic Film Guys. That's Friday night at six o'clock Eastern time. We'll be on Twitch there. Uh, for our part in live stream for the cure but you can donate you can buy t-shirts um, you can do all that stuff i think today's the last day for t-shirt pre pre-sales but definitely uh definitely help out five bucks ten bucks yeah. whatever you can uh they're they're raising a lot of great money for cancer and they got a lot of great survival stories involved so we'll, we'll have more on that in, uh in an episode later this week and we'll drop another promo in next week but uh that's certainly uh Certainly something we want to help out with. Yeah, we're very excited to be part of that. We thank them for asking. We're looking forward to sharing that with you guys. And uh, any anything you want to point out to us, you reach us. You can get us. We're Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram. MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com. And on Reddit, we're available everywhere you hear podcasts. Tune in, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, etc., etc. Michael, another Pixar episode in the bag. How about some words of wisdom here? Well, I mean, just like Disney Animation Studios have done, they make fairy tales, right? Sure. These movies are fairy tales. But what we don't always realize is that the old school fairy tale is a horror story. <laughs> and this, these are yeah. horror stories. Uh, and I, I just can't believe they made it palatable for kids. But, you know, on the flip side, they're also harrowing tales of survival, tales of heroics, high stakes heroics. So they, they really work. And the fact you make them told to children and you do it so well, you know, on my hand, I just bow to these uh, Pixar storytellers. I really do. The irony that the fairy tales aren't known as horror stories anymore because of Disney in the first place and Disney making them for kids. Right. It's really coming full circle here. It, it, yeah, with Pixar, it's coming <laughs> full circle because they're, they have the the edge about them yeah. to just go all, all, right. all in. 
Alright guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch these Pixar movies with us or any other Oscar type ones and we will we be- We didn't uh, mention the sharks! Remember the scary sharks at <laughs> the beginning of Nemo? Yeah. Hello! Fish all our friends. <laughs> Scariest moment! <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention that. Great stuff. We'll check you guys out next time. See ya.